0: Well, it's great to be studying the scriptures with you again. Uh, we are back in the Behold series. Um, obviously, we're in the book of John, but once a month, we're in a series called Behold. And what we're doing is we're looking at the promises of God uh, throughout the scriptures and, and learning about who he is, simply beholding who he is. Um, and as we do that, becoming more like his son, Jesus Christ. Um, and the word of the year has been Behold, which is why we've been going through this series. Today, a little different, Um, In the sense of it's not necessarily a promise we're looking at, though there are promises to draw from, surely in the prayer. Um, But what we're going to do is we are going to see how we can behold God or how we can seek after God in the midst of suffering. How do we behold Him in suffering? Not after it, not before it, but in the midst of it. And that's what we're going to look at today through... Uh, the story of Hannah. Before we get too far into it, let's pray. Uh, Lord, may you be at the center of this time. Uh, May you be the reason why we're gathered here. May all distractions be set aside. And uh, may what you have for us today uh, be the main thing. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen. First and second Samuel, they are um, at least sometimes referred to as the books of David. You know, it's a, they um, mention, they talk about the, the rise of David to the throne, um, how that happened, how that took place. However, uh, the story of David coming to the throne, first Samuel, starts with Hannah and a prayer that she gives. Actually, two prayers that she gives, and we're going to look briefly at both of those. So, the story of Hannah starts the story of David. And we see that in 1 Samuel. And what we're going to see is that she is oppressed, but she cries out in her affliction to the one who is ever present and ever interceding. She cries out to the Lord. It's interesting because David is known for his prayers. Obviously, he wrote the majority of the Psalms. Many of them are prayers or songs or a song and a prayer. Um, But here, we see that the story of David starts with a prayer. But it's not a prayer of David. It's a prayer of Hannah. And what we're going to see again is, what does it look like to behold the Lord? What does it look like to seek after him in the midst of suffering? In it. What does it look like to seek his face in suffering? Uh, Because maybe some of us are there now, in a place of suffering. Uh, I believe this morning that this story of suffering, Hannah, will be helpful to us as we suffer. Whether, Whether or not that's your reality now, Hannah gives us a picture of someone seeking after God in their suffering. just a little bit of context to set the stage as well. As we open up the book of 1 Samuel, it's an interesting scene. It is a scene of a family. We have a man named Elkanah, and he has two wives. Complicated, weird, awkward, but it's in the Old Testament. One wife is Hannah, and the other wife is Penina. Now, we're not not given any genealogy as to these two women. We are for Elkanah, but not for these two women. But we are given insight into their family dynamic, and that is this. Penina has children. Hannah does not. And that's what we know starting out in this story, 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 2. Penina has kids. Hannah does not. And that really enters into the first point for today, how do we seek after God in the midst of suffering? Number one, there's a problem that, and that is the problem that penina has kids, Hannah does not and we bring the problem to the Lord. Bring the problem to the Lord. Before we ever send up a petition and ask of God, because it's because we have identified some kind of problem. When we petition for provision, the problem is financial lack. When we petition for God's wisdom, the problem is that we know ourselves enough to know that we don't know. A God who is good, okay, sorry. I get distracted very easily, and this morning, I did not single-side print these pieces of paper. I double-side printed them, just so you know. It will probably happen again. And if we petition God for humility, the problem is pride. Every petition, every ask of God is a faithful attempt to overcome a problem. So we learn first that the problem in Elkanah's home is that Hannah, his wife, is barren. It says in verse 2, he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Maybe you've noticed, as you've read through the Old Testament, that infertility is common. It comes up a few times. Just from Genesis to 1 Samuel, barrenness is experienced by Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and now in our text, Hannah. Being barren is a problem because it creates internal shame, but also external shame. Culturally, motherhood, as it is somewhat today, but even more so, it was intensified back then, it was looked at as the ultimate blessing. And many concluded in that day that infertility, if you were barren, that meant that there was some disobedience to go along with that. There was a reason. There was a curse. So, so culturally, not only was there their shame of maybe not feeling good enough or not wife enough or not woman enough, but she also had to deal with the cultural assumptions that she's barren because of a certain disobedience in her life. When women didn't bear children, fingers were pointed their way. The reason for the infertility had to be her disobedience to God. However, who does the text point the finger at? So culture pointed it at Hannah. The text in verses five through six points to someone else. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. And here now we are face to face with the sovereignty of God and suffering. It's sometimes difficult to comprehend how the sovereign king of the universe, the Lord of hosts, the, the good Lord, could allow infertility when he knows it will hurt. And the temptation in discussions, I think, surrounding sovereignty and suffering is to redefine who God is based on our circumstances instead of defining God based on his word. We might say, that this situation is bad, therefore if God allowed something bad, he must not be good. And I think primarily we resist this temptation by understanding that our circumstances are not authoritative. They don't have the authority to define who God is. God defines God. And it is Jesus who made him known. Nicodemus, in the book of John, called Jesus good. And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? Only God is good. God is good. If life is hard, God hasn't changed. If things are difficult, he hasn't changed. When we define the nature of God according to what we go through, we will end up worshiping a God made in our own image. A God who is good when things are good. And bad when life is bad. And I say made in our image because that's what we're like. We change with the wind's. We change, but that's not God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if God's nature is consistent and unchanging, that means that when life is hard, when life is insufferable, when ministry is hard, when leadership is hard, when family is hard, when your body is broken, it means that even in the midst of those things, the truth is that God is good. In those things, in those situations, it means that God is doing something good in me, for me, through the suffering, through the pain. 2 Corinthians chapter four, verse 17. Paul writes, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. James chapter one, verses two through four. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Yes, the Lord closed Hannah's womb. And perhaps it's because he wanted to birth something in her heart before he birthed someone in her womb. And that's the problem that we see here, infertility. God does not change though our circumstances do, amen? Now the second point here, so the first point, we bring bring the problem to him honestly. Secondly, we wait on the Lord. We wait on the Lord. I turned it, right? Has everything made sense so far? Okay. (laughs) Oh, man, there's going to be some point where I skip an entire page. I'm going to say, let's close in prayer. Okay. Wait on the Lord. That's one thing to have a problem that lasts for a couple of hours. Uh, We know how to handle quick problems. It's a whole other thing when the problem persists. What happens when the problem continues? What happens when the suffering doesn't let up? What happens when the discouragement doesn't lift? When you've prayed for months, maybe years in this case, and there doesn't seem to be an answer, it's really hard to trust God when the problem becomes a pattern. Hannah's suffering was not short-lived. Her problem went on for years, actually. Look at verse three of chapter one. It'll be up on the screen. Now this man, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord. So on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina and Hannah. To Hannah, he would give a double portion because of his love for her. He had a special love for Hannah that possibly could have been the cause of some of the jealousy, maybe some of that, You know, pointing at Hannah. This is terrible. All right. But for a second here, uh, let's put ourselves in Hannah's shoes. Imagine how emotionally drained she must be, how this has weighed on her for so long. And as a result of Hannah's suffering, she weeps and would not eat, not because of a fast, not because she wasn't hungry but because I think, David writes in the book of Psalms, which is not on the screen, my tears have been my food day and night. And I think there are times when we're so overwhelmed that the only thing we have energy for isn't even substance, but tears. And and we looked at this story briefly last month, but in John chapter 11, we learn about a man named Lazarus. Uh, He and his sisters were friends of Jesus Their whole family was friends of Jesus. Lazarus got sick. While Jesus was away, a group of people came to Jesus, said, Hey, your friend is sick, Uh, desperately so. He's gonna die if you don't come quickly and heal him. And the text says something interesting about the response of Jesus. It says that Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters so, or therefore, that when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed and waited for two days. Well, that's strange. It just said that he loved him. He should be a bit more urgent if he loves him. He should be in a hurry if he loves them. He shouldn't be making them wait. He shouldn't be waiting to rush to him. You're the healer, Jesus. You're the Messiah. He stays. And it's because he waits that his friend dies. And it's because he waits and takes his time that his friends suffer, it's because he doesn't move when they want him to, then everything actually gets seemingly worse. And then we find out why. Jesus says, it's for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And I believe that sometimes God waits to deliver us from certain seasons because he has glory in mind. Maybe God has stayed his hand on your life so that circumstances get so complicated that it becomes impossible to fix by natural means so that when it is lifted, you know who did it. What if God is more committed to our sanctification than he is to our comfort? Hannah's womb has been closed year by year. Isn't much she can do about it, but God is setting the stage here for his glory to be revealed. And point number three today is this. How do we seek after the Lord in the midst of suffering? First, we honestly bring our problems to Him. We wait on the Lord. But we also bring our requests to Him. Verse 9. Verse 9. After they had eaten and drunken in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. After dinner, Hannah hasn't eaten. Eaten. She is sad. She's distraught. She gets up and she goes to the temple. She doesn't go to indulge on food. She doesn't go to lust when she's in need. She doesn't go to any of her friends to cope with their suffering. She goes to the temple. And notice the language of how she is praying as well. The text says she is deeply distressed. She wept bitterly. She's troubled in spirit, pouring out her soul, great anxiety, vexation. The writer uses actually six different phrases to describe her emotional range. And we can see in the book of Psalms that, that God wants us to be honest with Him about our feelings. Hannah here is bringing her whole self to God, everything she has. And also notice how she begins her petition, how she begins her asking. Not with the problem, not with the continuation of her problem, year after year, she says, "O Lord of hosts." And this title for God was the name for God that signaled supreme strength, uh, the idea that God is sovereign over cosmic and earthly hosts. Why would Baron Hannah use that name for God in her prayer? Because I think the name of God that we employ in prayer can function as a reminder to the soul. It's an act of meditation. If God is the Lord of hosts for Hannah, then he is sovereign, he is powerful, he is in control. And, and if that is the case, then there is no circumstance, even in her own body, that God can't change. What is the name of God that you need to employ in your prayer this season? For some, it might be savior. And we need to meditate on our sin and on the salvation we have received. Others of us may be father. Maybe maybe you're confused about your own identity and, and need to be reminded that you are a child of the heavenly father. Or maybe you're in ministry. Maybe you're a missional family leader or you serve here and you spend so much time giving that you can forget that you need to receive from your father. Hannah calls God Lord of hosts because he is sovereign over angels and demons, over creation, over the waters, the wind. And if the Lord of hosts is the same God that closed Hannah's womb, then he is the same God that can open it. Now don't hear me say that he always does what we ask. Because if he doesn't open it and he keeps it closed, he is also big enough to give you joy in the sorrow. She calls him Lord of hosts. If he created the body, he can heal the body. If he gave us life, he can continue to give us life. So referring to herself, so she also refers to herself as servant two times, and then God is Lord of hosts. She makes her petition. And verse 11 is the the petition here in chapter one. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So I can understand the petition. I can understand the request. She's a childless woman, which is creating turmoil and stress that is, that is deeply, deeply causing her to suffer. So if she's gonna ask for anything, it would, be, it would make sense for her to ask for a baby. She does that. However, she petitions God for the son that would deliver her from her suffering, but then in the same breath, she says, but when you give him to me, I'm gonna give him back. You'd expect her to just ask for the gift, and it's not really even for her to say, I'm gonna give the gift back to the giver. But I think what Hannah does in this moment is not anything less than what God has required of us. Every single thing we have, children, money, marriage, singleness, your ministry, your mind, your skills, your ability to reason, your ability to walk and speak and dance and laugh and teach and sing, all gifts come down from the Father of light. And some of us have received it because we've asked for it. Others of us have received it just because God is generous. I think that's why some of our prayers actually might remain unanswered. Because James says, in the book of James, you asked it with the wrong motive. You actually only spend it on your own passions. But whenever God answers our prayers, giving us whatever it is that we ask, we should, we must give it right back. Nothing we have is ours. And Hannah shows her devotion to God by which she promises to give her son to God as a Nazarene. By doing so, she will mother him until he is weaned, which, culturally, until he is weaned is about three years of age. I have a three-year-old daughter. Can't imagine. Then her son will live in service to God for the rest of his life. So you'll also notice that when she's praying this petition, she's asking this request. Uh, she isn't asking it out loud. Um, the text says that her lips moved And she prayed silently. She is passionately focused on her prayer to the Lord. So much so that Eli thought she was drunk. And Eli corrects his assumption and then he blesses her in verse 18. It says this. She said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. My apologies, the blessing was in verse 17. So then Hannah So the Hannah that walked into the temple, as we see in verse 18, was not the same Hannah that walked out. Before she was vexed, she was anxious, she was distressed, and now the text says that her face is no longer sad. And I'm sure you'll notice that her prayer hasn't been answered yet. She hasn't gone home to be with her husband. There is no baby in her womb. There is no child in her hands, but she has joy. You see, prayer is so much more than getting what we want. It's communing with the living God. It is placing yourself in a position to experience the peace that surpasses understanding. Hannah wanted Samuel desperately, but she needed God. She thought she needed Samuel, but she merely wanted him. What she needed was God. And sometimes that's what the waiting is for. You see, we need to boldly approach the throne of grace with our requests because sometimes what we thought we needed, we really just wanted. Hannah goes to the temple to bring her petition to the Lord, to bring a request to him. When she leaves the temple, she's not sad anymore, and I think it's because before she got what she wanted, her hope was renewed in the God that she had been needing. Notice that the the writer makes sure to tell us that once she left, what did she do? Once she left the temple, She went back home and she ate. And remember the significance of this meal. Before she was not partaking in this meal, but now she is. After pouring out her soul to God, she goes home and worships. That's what that meal was. It was a worship celebration with your family after the temple time. So we continue in the text here. Verse 19 through 20 they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife and the Lord remembered her and in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So how do we seek the Lord in the midst of suffering? First, we honestly bring him the problem We wait on him, we bring him our petition and finally we rejoice in him which is our final point today. Hannah prays again which is what Diane read before I came up. After the Lord answers her prayer, provides for her a son, she turns to rejoicing. Verse one of chapter two. I'm only gonna be reading two verses uh, in this prayer, the first and the last. The first verse My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides in my enemies, but I rejoice in your salvation. One of the themes of of Hannah's prayer is that God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. God exalted Hannah by giving her a son despite Penina, her enemy. And that's also a theme throughout the book of Psalms, the book of prayer. This idea that God exalts the humble and humbles the proud. And we also see an interesting mention of one exaltation in verse 10. It's an exaltation of a king. It says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. What makes this mention of a king noteworthy here in 1 Samuel chapter 2 What makes it noteworthy is that it's in 1 Samuel chapter two. There is no king in Israel. Hannah's son Samuel will be the one to anoint Israel's first king, but Samuel's just a baby. Saul and David and Solomon and Ahab and Ahaz and Jeroboam and Josiah, none of them are here. So it's interesting because she's obviously not pulling from her cultural context to make this prayer. She's obviously seeing something that everybody else ain't seen yet. So it is possible, I'd say, I'd say probable, is that there is something prophetic going on here. That in fact, she is pointing forward to the Davidic kingdom, which will make room for a more sufficient kingdom in which the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, is born of a woman who has never had children before. The Messiah is born from a womb that should not have had a baby, born from a virgin. This is the son. This is the Messiah. He is set apart to live in service to God, his father, all the days of his life. This is foreshadow. This king, this son, this Messiah is a gift to the world in response to a barren people. People who may or may not have children, but who are still fruitless fruitless in the sense that they don't love God and they don't love people. And at one point, these fruitless people had to go to a city, had to go to a place to deal with their barrenness, had to go to Shiloh, had to go to Jerusalem where there was a priest like Eli who could do some work to restore their fellowship with God, who could slaughter some animals and put some blood on an altar. But these priests were so imperfect that just like Eli, they might have seen your behavior, but they couldn't discern your heart. So these barren people didn't just need a priest, they needed a high priest. One who can not only see your behavior, but one one that wouldn't just cleanse your body, but cleanse your heart and your conscience. See, this priest doesn't change you and purify you by sacrificing some animal that is set apart for the ritual. He became the sacrificial lamb. It is in Jesus that we find our joy renewed in the midst of suffering, Our greatest need is not stuff or a child or a big ministry or a successful business or a great family life, but our greatest need is God. We no longer have to go to a place. Jesus is now the temple, He's the place. We no longer have to go to a priest, He is the high priest. We no longer have to make animal sacrifices because he is the sacrificial lamb. He is the double portion that we've all been asking for. We can have him at church. We can have him in our car. We can have him at home. We can have him at our jobs. We don't have to go to a place to petition. We go straight to the source itself. If you're ever vexed or distressed or anxious, if everything feels too heavy to bear, Jesus said, come to my throne of grace, not with timidity, but with confidence. The enemy wants us to pursue idols. He wants us to trust everything else for satisfaction except for the one who will give us satisfaction that sustains. In Christ, the Lord of Hosts, is the son, the sacrifice, and the temple. And this God is good. Draw near to him today. So how do we seek the Lord in the midst of suffering? We honestly bring our problems to him We wait on him, we bring our requests to him, and we rejoice in him. Let's pray together.